That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus focused vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. All right, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. It's Dr. David Miller, Andy, and Dr. Michelle Pobega, Andy. We have to yeah, say that just for but, our Ontario regulations, make sure yeah. you say naturopath. Keep saying have it. Your hand slapped. Um, yeah. What? <laughs> How's, yeah. I know that joke isn't funny anymore, but we keep saying it. So we'll, we promise we'll stop. Okay. So yeah. what you have to say ND after you say doctor. So clarify yeah. what type of doctor in the old Absolutely. boys club of Ontario, we got to say ND to specify to that-, that we are not medical doctors. Yeah. Okay. In order to use the doctor title as an naturopath. So this is what, this is our new intro. Yeah, I guess it's an unscripted intro. Michelle, tell us who we're talking. We got, we got pure Instagram fire today. We do have pure, and that's the best way to describe uh, Dr. Asia Muhammad, pure Instagram fire. That is how I have been introduced to her. I found her through a couple of other colleagues that I very much admire. And I think they reposted some of her things. And I was like, who is this gem posting the most awesome information in the best way possible? Um, And it's all, a lot of it's cited in research. So y'all can't, y'all can't come at it. Like you guys can try and knock it down, but it's like, she, she's, she's got backup. She's got the receipts for everything and it's incredible. So today we have uh, Dr. Asia Mohammed. She values the power of lifestyle modification to achieve optimal health. She uses evidence-based science-based medicine to provide individualized attention to those in her practice. Um, and she's all about nutraceuticals, botanical medicine, nutrition, exercise, mind-body therapy, and even things like hypnosis um, and has a special interest in gastroenterology. Um, that Dr. David and I, Dr. David, naturopathic doctor, and I both really love mind, body medicine and stress management. Um, and she's just an all around incredible fire, informative ND. So we're so stoked to have informative. her. Informative. I love her. That. Informative. Yeah, she's very informative. Actually, Guys, that's... I'm getting over a cold. I might not be the most eloquent today. So let's just be kind. Oh, good. It's all good. <laughs> Well, yeah, your your Instagram is really informative. It's just way more fun and cool than mine. And uh, uh, yeah, I like it a well, lot. So check out, yeah, check out the Instagram. Uh, you won't be the first. You'll be maybe the 50,000th person to follow her. So that's kind of cool too. <laughs> You'll be okay. in good company, yeah. <laughs> what are we going to talk about, girls? Yes, we are going to talk about something that I'm super stoked about. Asia, tell us what we're going to chat about today. We are going to talk about the liver, specifically fatty liver disease, which is kind of my jam, but I guess we'll talk about liver, intersection GI, and all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. What You said that fatty liver is kind of your jam. What kind of got you into that particular area of interest? So when I was in naturopathic school in Arizona, like we learned about fatty liver, but it wasn't like, I don't remember it being such a prominent area that we focused on. Um, And so when I got out of school, I ended up 
doing this like three-year residency with two gastroenterologists who also like function as hepatologists in a way they're not hepatologists that's an entirely different specialty but they see a ton of liver patients and so I would just see like thousands and thousands of cases of GI and liver issues and one thing that I'd always see would be like incidental fatty liver finding on an ultrasound so a lot of patients they go to their primary care for right upper quadrant pain, which is usually never the liver, but usually always the gallbladder. And so they come in, they have an ultrasound jelly on the belly and it says, oh, you got fatty liver, go see a GI. And so they refer them to our clinic. And, you know, at that time, I think fatty liver, fatty liver literature was just kind of starting to burgeon in terms of these like hepatologists being super focused and on fatty liver and, and having these entire conferences on specifically non-alcoholic fatty liver, because alcoholic fatty liver looks exactly the same. It's non-alcoholic. The difference is like what the, the agent um, for causing the fatty liver is. So with alcoholic fatty liver, it's alcohol. With non-alcoholic fatty liver, it's like diet and lifestyle. And so, you know, they started focusing on this. And so we started seeing and hearing more about fatty liver disease and complications. And I'll never forget this. I remember this woman being 30 years old and around 30, being diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. And so once you have cirrhosis, your liver is essentially like a raisin. I mean, it's not functioning. You have all the other organ systems are messed up because of this liver that's like just shriveled up. And you essentially have a 10-year prognosis, right? So it's like, oh, once you're diagnosed with cirrhosis, 10 years and you're out. And so that was, I thought, just eye-opening because she didn't really have any symptoms, right? So hmm. she came in because she went to her primary care. They did some blood work and her liver enzymes were marginally elevated. So they don't have to be sky high. They don't have to be hmm. super low. They can literally be like 10 points or 20 points above. And the doctor may say, well, your last blood work was like this too. So let's just send you for an ultrasound. And then they get an ultrasound. And it's like, yeah, you have fibrosis of your liver. And it's like, once you see that, I mean, that's pretty much a scar tissue in the liver and it's beyond wow. fat. And so they send her to us and we did a fibro scan. So a fibro scan is kind of like an ultrasound in terms of technique and how it's done. And they essentially put this monitor over your abdomen to detect how much fibrosis you have. And they can actually score you to say if it's a one through four, which are the stages of fibrosis. And four is typically cirrhosis. Um, and so she was staged, and I think she ended up being like a F3, almost F4, and that's like cirrhotic. So at that point, you either get on the liver transplant list or that's it. I mean, there, there aren't any other options mm -hmm. at the time that were being discussed, but there's doctors. When is this? When is this, Asia? When, how long ago is this? This was probably 20. Mind. This was probably 2017, 2018. Okay. 2017, okay. 2017 for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at the time, you know, fibro scans around that time were just like new FDA approved for detecting and staging fibrosis. And so, um, like I said, at that point, it's like, okay, well, you discuss with them, you need to get a liver transplant or you're going to, or, and you're going to also be on all these medications to prevent further degradation in a shorter period of time. And you know, they're now predicting that at that time, they were predicting that in the next 10 years, 10, 15 years, liver transplant would be the number or non-alcoholic fatty liver will be the number one reason for liver transplant, which would displace hep C and alcoholism hmm. for the reasons for liver transplant. Cause you know, there's Easy. a cure for hep C now, right? Just one pill a day for 90 days and it's cured. So okay. um, that's a good thing, but it's like outside of that, you know, the liver transplant list, that's also a long waiting list. Yeah. And a liver transplant is so expensive. Like if you, if you estimate or look at the cost for liver transplant, it's like upwards of 600, $700,000 can be, can be a million dollars to have a liver transplant performed. So it's like, there's all these variables that go into play. And a lot of these patients just end up wasting away and they don't get the liver transplant. So that's what I, what, what made me interested because like I said, this woman had no symptoms. So, you know, your liver doesn't really have like nerve cells in the sense that if somebody if you, if you have pain in your liver or something's happening you won't feel it the only mm. way you'll feel your liver is if it's like stretched so large that it kind of stretches the capsule it's in the gleason's capsule yeah, so if yeah. it stretches that capsule then you feel pain in that area but usually right-sided pain is always gallbladder and you don't see that with fatty liver you don't you i've seen like hepatomegaly but that's what people who have like like hepatitis hepatitis like viral titers like they have like ALT, AST through the root and their liver actually is enlarged, but you know, that resolves. And so 
I don't know. It's just when I saw that, and I thought there are no symptoms. And you think about all the people walking around with no symptoms, and they think, oh, I don't have any symptoms. I'm disease free. I have family members that are like like worst case metabolic syndrome you'd ever see, and they literally are like, I'm healthy besides my eczema and I'm like what's wrong with you you know it's like it's the skin that's the problem it's like no it's like ignore everything else that my skin has a rash that that's the only thing that's bothering me so it's like a lot of people live in that mind frame of like no yeah. symptoms I'm fine yeah so when you say no symptoms do you mean like no symptoms were found by sort of conventional investigation or do you mean like if you saw this person you would have thought there were no symptoms too because sometimes there's a difference yeah between those. that's a good point you know I would say <laughs> So this was somebody that was um, metabolic or overweight, right? And so mm-hmm. for in and of itself, you know, okay, here's a risk factor yeah. for fatty liver. But you have a lot of people who are overweight who don't have fatty liver. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, that's something that I would look at. And I think metabolic health, and if I ever see somebody who's overweight and their liver enzymes or even just ALT greater than AST, even if they're normal, I'm like, hey, you probably got some fatty liver, go get an ultrasound done or something. But um, a lot of times with fatty liver, the, the symptoms are just kind of like fatigue, malaise, which everybody has that, you know, it's so I mean? common. So, so exactly. common. how do you differentiate that from like thyroid exactly. and yeah. and yeah, exactly. you mentioned something really interesting and I've seen this before too, where you said, uh, liver enzymes weren't even really elevated or marginally elevated. Mm-hmm. And it was only, and you said, uh, you said something really key, but it was, it was almost like found as a, as a side effect of doing an mm-hmm. ultrasound or incidental. It wasn't even, incidental. Yeah. That's the word you use. And it was, they weren't looking for that, but it was no. incidentally found. And I find that that is a very common thing where I'll implore people to go talk to the medical doctors. Cause I can't order an ultrasound myself mm. and being like, we need to check your gallbladder. We need to check your liver. I want to make sure your pancreas is okay because there's too many digestive things that are happening yeah. up in that area. And their doctor's like, yeah, but your liver enzymes are fine and, and you don't have X, Y, and Z. And then they push and push and then ultrasound comes back and there's fatty liver disease. Mm-hmm. And I find that's really interesting because it doesn't always show on enzymes, but you said something else. Was it ALT greater than AST? And mm-hmm. there are certain yep. things that you look at with the enzymes, even if they aren't above the margins. Yep. Yep. I do. So like typically if ALT is greater than AST, that's more so fatty liver. If they have other factors, um, positive as well. So if they have like prediabetes, diabetes, if they have weight issues, if they are like have dyslipidemias, if they have like the waistline greater than X30, something, whatever the inches are for male and female, um, if that, those things are there and I see like ALT greater than AST, like I'm, I'm always thinking fatty liver disease and, you know, AST greater than ALT, like is something that would clue me into like, if somebody was like drinking alcohol and they're like, well, I stopped drinking and you still see their AST greater than their ALT. That's they're not, they're still drinking. And so there are little things you can kind of look at to see Busted. if somebody, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And I remember being in residency and like training with the doctors and they'd be like, I know you're still drinking. Your AST came back elevated. Okay. And then the patient would be like, well, I just have a little bit, you know, here and there. And they're supposed yeah. to be off in line for a liver transplant, you know? And so it's interesting, but like those little things I picked up on and learned, and I'm so grateful for that, you know, because there's so much you can glean from just basic blood work, even just looking at like platelet counts, right? And we know that when your platelet count is so low, that can be a sign that you have liver fibrosis or liver damage, because what happens oh. is when your liver becomes like cirrhotic or fibrotic, everything that's going into the liver kind of gets pushed back, right? And so it's not able to flow as it should. So you kind of have this congestion. And one of the like areas that flows into the liver is the spleen. So what'll happen is that you'll have this kind of backflow of blood into the spleen. And like typically, like we know, when an organ or system is being used, it kind of starts to enlarge, like function, form, X, Y, and Z. So the spleen kind of will enlarge and and a large spleen means it's going to have more capacity, right? So then you start seeing all this degradation of blood cells and whatnot. So you can actually see people's platelet levels drop. And that'll be a sign like, hey, there may be some liver damage happening here. But interesting. Um, yeah, I don't really look at those things, to be honest with you. But I do look at more so the ALT, AST, and metabolic factors. And then I'll send them for just scans to confirm or deny. Is there a certain ratio of ALT to AST or is it literally just it's it's higher than the one? Does it no, does it there is be? a ratio. Um there's a ratio of ALT over AST. I think if it's like greater than, eh, I don't want to say this, like greater than one or two, then you can clue in to like more it's more sensitive for like 
a possible fatty liver, that, that number could be off because the literature is always changing. Like there was just mm -hmm. a study that came out showing that, you know, you obviously you can't rely on liver enzymes. So there was a study they found where people had like advanced fatty liver. So they had NASH where it wasn't just fat in the liver. The liver was actually inflamed because of the fat and their enzymes were completely normal. Wow. Completely normal. And so, um, I, I typically will just look at other factors as well. And sometimes I will do the ratio for ALT, AST, but sometimes you just know if they have like other metabolic issues and they have like a certain diet, like you just know there's going to be fat in the liver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talked about platelets there too. I think, I think that's an important one for the clinicians that listen, listen uh, to the podcast. Uh, low, can you just talk just maybe a little bit more about the low platelets and, and the relationship yeah. to the liver again? Yeah. So typically when you have like fibrosis or cirrhosis of the liver and the liver has become like shriveled up. So you start to have backflow, right? You'll have like ascites where they have like these big kind of mm. fluid bellies, right? So you yeah. see a lot of people who drink a lot of alcohol, they have their just pure belly and that's kind of fluid there because there's backflow from the liver. And, and so you have that happen. You can have um, esophageal varices where they get these kind of varicose veins in their esophagus and they'll start like maybe coughing up blood or if they have an episode of like intense vomiting they can actually rupture one of those veins and kind of vomit so much blood and I actually had a case when I was in residency where this guy ended up just bleeding out and dying because he lost so much blood from esophageal varices oh he had really God. severe liver disease but your spleen is another organ that's affected by liver cirrhosis, liver damage. So you kind of have backflow of blood and all the blood flowing into the spleen starts to be worked on at a higher capacity. So then you start seeing lower levels of certain red blood cell indices and platelets are one of the things you will see drop when somebody has like severe liver disease. Um, and they have, well, like, they'll have like easy bruising and you'll see other kind of derm manifestations as well that can clue you in. So, yeah. so I think a lot of times a common thing that people like if us as naturopaths and stuff, we're like, we do cleanses, we do things. Yeah. And a lot of my friends who are not naturopathically minded be like, you don't drink as much as I do. Why do you have to do a cleanse? Why do you have to clean your liver? And I'm always like, it's so much more than just alcohol. So <laughs> you made a differentiation between um, alcoholic related fatty liver mm -hmm. disease and then non-alcoholic being related mm -hmm. to more like lifestyle factors and stuff. Can you expand on that for our audience? Yeah. On the, uh, on the, on, on the non-alcoholic side. Totally. So alcoholic liver disease and non-alcoholic, well, I'll say alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLP is what they call it. Um, they look exactly the same histologically. So if you were to take a piece of liver tissue from an alcoholic and a piece of liver tissue from somebody who drinks no alcohol, but they have fatty liver, you can't tell them apart. Mm -hmm. And so the only way you know is if you take a history, right? And so sometimes, you know, also the blood work can clue you in. So if you see that when you're doing their blood work, their AST is just chronically higher than their ALT and they're telling you like, oh, I don't drink. And they, you know, they drink, maybe they don't think they drink enough to cause liver disease. Some, some patients will say, yeah, I drink a couple of times a week, but it's nothing, you know, but their liver, their metabolism is totally different. So it affects them in a way that it doesn't affect somebody who could tolerate more without as much liver damage so soon. Um, but when you see non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, that's typically all diet lifestyle. Now, I will say there used to be like this, like two hit theory of like kind of what happens, fat gets deposited and the fat, you know, starts oxidizing and then that's what happens. But now there's like all these multiple hit theories around the gut microbiome, genetics, around, you know, diet, lifestyle, around stress and so forth. So um, when I see people who have fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I always, and I think most naturopathic doctors do take a really good history and dietary recall. And I always find things there in the diet, excessive amounts of fructose. I mean, I've not seen, I'll say this, I've not seen one non-alcoholic fatty liver disease case yet that does not drink something that has high fructose corn syrup in it. Hmm. And a lot of the ones I see, they're like, my doctor said I have this. And I'm like, oh, what do you drink? And I'm, they're like, I don't drink soda. I'm like, oh, what do you drink? Like, oh, I drink ginger ale. I'm like, that's soda. <laughs> You know, and so it's like, there's like the education, you know what I mean? You really have to educate yeah. people because they're in their mind. It's like, oh, it's just ginger ale. And I'm like, yeah, well, it, mm -hmm. in my mind, it's still soda. So, yeah. And you think about all the ingredients, the first ingredient in a lot of these things is high fructose corn syrup. I was just listening to a podcast. I don't know where, what podcast it was. And this like hepatologist was talking about 
how they're starting to see, no, no, it was a pediatrician and they're, they start, they saw some elevated enzymes in like a 10 year old what? and they have fatty liver disease. It's sent them for ultrasound. Yeah. So a lot of these kids are drinking these like juices that are like sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. I mean, kids love juice. And so mm-hmm. now we have an epidemic of fatty liver in kids. I had a, a guy I was working with last year. He's 22 and he has fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And it's just mind blowing because when you see it, like it doesn't, it takes like years for this to develop. It's not just developing in a month or a couple of months. So when I see that, I think like, yeah, there's something happening in childhood that's got us to this space. Because once you're fatty liver, you know, only 25% of people with fatty liver progress to NASH, which is where it starts to become inflammatory. So you got about 70% of people who have non-alcoholic fatty liver who will just have the fat in the liver. You don't want it there because it can't interfere with liver processes. However, You'd rather have that than have the next phase, which is NASH. Because once you have that inflammatory aspect, and the difference is kind of like microscopic findings that they see. So they'll say, oh, we did a liver biopsy. You had hepatocyte ballooning. So the cells look like this. You had these like infiltrates and so forth. And they say, okay, you have NASH versus um, like non-like NASH. And once you have NASH, then you're put at higher risk for cirrhosis and then like hepatic liver cancer. So I think Hmm. the stats, like only 3% of people with um, NASH actually progress to liver cancer, but I, I've never seen a liver cancer case from NASH in my experience. What are you testing people's insulin? Like, I I feel like, uh, I feel like we can't have this discussion without talking a a bit about insulin and and maybe how that relates to, to some of this. Does, does that fit into your, uh, you know, your extra training and all that, uh, guidance you had with the hepatologists? Um, how did, how did insulin fit into this? Absolutely not. What do you mean? These are conventional doctors. They don't know, they don't know what's going on, you know? So it's like, what what do they know about insulin? Like, they're like, Oh, refer them to the endocrinologist. I remember I had this, this is going to sound so bad, but I was working with this doctor and they were like, I was like, I was like, can you come listen to their heart? I was like, I feel like there's, this is a murmur. I don't really know what this is. It sounds so weird. And so they listen. They're like, listen, I don't know what this is. Send them to the cardiologist. Like these doctors don't be knowing what's going on. Let me just tell y'all that. So no, they didn't care about insulin levels. They were like, oh, you have literally, I remember the doc I worked with and he was so, he was so great. And he taught me so much. He was like, tell him to go exercise and just eat better. And they don't know what that means, right? So they literally come into the room and they're like, yeah, yeah. Well, your ultrasound says you have fatty liver disease. Listen, just, you know, exercise a little bit more, eat a little bit better. And the patient's like, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Like the patient doesn't know. So we're all just in the room nodding our head. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exercise, eat better. (laughs) What does that mean? And so, no, we never talked about that. But a lot of times with fatty liver, you do see um, these other comorbidities. There was like, like, I think the stat was like 85% of people with, um, diabetes plus a certain, like, I think they were using BMI in this study, BMI over, I can't think of the number I used to know about heart. 85% of these people have fatty liver. Like you don't even really have to test them. You literally will know just based on A1C and based on their weight, you can say, yes, I'm X percent confident that this person has fatty liver. The good thing is with fatty liver though, like there's not a medication yet. And like, there's so many companies racing to create a med- create um, medication. There are like a few yeah, that are in clinical course. trials right now, which is going to F the liver up, right? We're going to be in a whole other predicament. So I, I honestly am like afraid for those medications just because the liver does so much. So I don't know. Mm, yeah. I used to know kind of what the mechanisms were for the drugs, but I know one of them, they were testing out the biazolidinediones, whatever the, the anti-diabetes medications to, and a lot of the end goals or the outcomes for these studies is assessing if it stops fibrosis, right? Cause that's what you want to stop. You want to make sure the liver does not get scarred up because it can deal with the fat. It can deal with some inflammation. It's a really resilient organ. It'll grow back if it's chopped off. So, you know, with that being said, a lot of these drugs, I don't know what mechanism they're looking to stop, but that's going to affect some part of the liver. I have a a friend in here in Missouri, a colleague of mine, he's a gastroenterologist and we talk about this and he was just like, yeah, I don't know what these meds are going to look like. It's just going to mess something up in the liver. Like they are already aware. So that's the next race. And I'm sure it'll be a billion dollar industry because it's like 25% of Americans, 25% of people in the world have fatty liver disease. So, and the fact that like know. the medical doctor's like, yeah, just go eat better and exercise, but give zero guidance. And then the clients don't even know what that means. Cause like their diet and lifestyle probably led them to this in the first place. Mm-hmm. So they're just kind of like, exactly. okay. 
they don't know what that means no and the doctor then leaves the room goes on the lunch break and is having a snickers and a steak (laughs) and a soda you know and it's like meanwhile you're like oh eat right it's like yeah like you anyways oh my god yeah (laughs) i love your fire asia it's so good (laughs) (laughs) you're just like calling it out i love it so okay so here's here's the kind of question that i have if somebody does have fatty liver, what would be some of the things that you would do? Like, I know mm-hmm. you're into liver health, but mm-hmm. I know like milk thistle isn't always mm-hmm. the first place to start. And I just want to point out something too, is you mentioned this too. The liver is a very regenerative tissue. So for me, if there's a little bit of fat, I'm already like, what are y'all doing to your body that mm-hmm. your liver cannot overcome this mm-hmm. to maintain healthy tissue? status. And like even a little bit of fat to me is troubling. And I just want to put that out there for our audience. You don't have to get to the point of cirrhosis to start caring about your liver. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, when it comes to how you would begin to mitigate this from a naturopathic perspective, because like you said, and I think Dave and I were just like nodding furiously, we're concerned about the idea of these medications because a lot of medications in and of itself stress the microbiome. And you said the microbiome plays a role in liver health and mm-hmm. they stress the liver. So how is this going to then be beneficial for the liver? So from a naturopathic perspective, I think that's probably the most ultimate way to go to service the yeah. liver. How would you begin to... Uh, well, obviously we can't go into specifics and diagnoses and like dosing and stuff, but how would you begin to walk somebody through addressing a fatty liver issue? Yeah. So fatty liver is actually not complicated at all to reverse. We know that according to the literature numerous studies confirm this, like once a patient loses like seven to 10% of their body weight, the fat in the liver actually starts to resolve. And we know that histologically that happens. So you don't have to have a biopsy before and after um, to check this, but we, you just know seven to 10% is that magic number, right? So if somebody is on 200 pounds, right, that's I don't know the math, it's like 14 to 20 pounds, right? And you lose that and your liver improves. So it's like, I always mm. start with kind of like lifestyle and dietary modifications. And, you know, I, there's a book that just came out called Glucose Goddess. And I just started listening to it. She has a huge Instagram and she talks about ways to tweak insulin glucose like, response. It's honestly life-changing. I bought the audiobook and I bought the, um, the like actual iBook on my on my iTunes and I actually started like screenshotting pages and sending it to people I know like you need to do this but you know a lot of these things the hacks in her book that she talks about helping people lower their A1C and kind of lose weight and shed the pounds you know a lot of naturopathic doctors we've already been training these things right and we know this and one of the simplest things she has people do is kind of eat fiber to you know uh, blunt the insulin response right so that when you do eat carbs and sugars you're not kind of having that spike and so I was, we were trained like this in school. We already know this. It's like just now becoming this like magical feel, which I love that there's, there's an awareness around it now, but it's like, I remember being in class and like Dr. Mona Morstein, who was like my teacher. Yes, the Mona. <laughs> yeah, she's brilliant. And she told, talked to us about, you know, having fiber in our meals. And she's a really big person in the metabolic space, diabetes and so Absolutely. forth. And, um, I do that with my patients. I'm like, listen, you need to have fibrous foods. I have like a list of 10 foods that I have them take out. And, um, you know, when I went to this conference once, this hepatologist, his name is, I think it's like Steven Smith. He's kind of like one of the leading heads on like fatty liver in America. I'm pretty sure that's his name, but, um, he is in Texas, right? So in Texas, you have a lot of like Hispanic Latin community there. And I guess corn tortillas is like a big thing. And yeah. he was talking about how when he sees his patients, like a lot of his dietary protocols are more focused on like some of the traditional foods because that's a demographic. So I kind of adapted what he was doing. And that was a conference I went to like years ago, but I take people off of like many types of like grains, like corn products, refined products, like sugary things, all sodas, anything with high fructose corn syrup has to go in the trash. Like my, one of my dream jobs would be to go to people's homes unannounced and find out what they're eating with high fructose corn syrup and like shame them. I love the the unannounced parts, just like surprise, you're cleaning your cupboard. We have a high fructose corn syrup inspectors open up. Let me see what you got. And so listen, I would tell people, you can't have these things. They're messing up your liver. 
And so oh, I yeah. have like a list of 10 or 12 things and I'm like, take these out and then I'll replace them. Like these are the 10 or 12 things you can have. You can have as much right. green tea as you want. You can have as much quality fatty fish as you want. You can have as much green vegetables and blah, 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 blah. So I do that. And then I will do some kind of weight loss protocol a lot of times it's just changing around their diet and adding in like fibers and like quality protein and switching up that timing of that i may add in like there's a botanical i love gynostemma pentophyllum which is mit um, gynostemma is great i haven't i haven't gotten into great. it too much but i but i've learned a little bit about it and it's supposed Asia, to be awesome yeah. can we do yeah can we do a, a just a tiny little segue into gynostemma uh, yeah. like yes i, I forget is what the, the, jow, jowling yes yes and the and the yes. and the Indian uh, the Hindi I believe it's the Hindi word for it is something like sugar killer or something. Uh, anyway, I didn't know are, you, that. are you thinking gymnema? Gy- oh, maybe no, no. I, yeah, I am thinking gymnema. You're doing so, gymnema. This is gynostemma. This is okay. Different. Learn Jowling. me. It's learn me here. Learn me. <laughs> Clearly, I've just shown yeah. my ignorance. Let's go. No, no, no. no but, but that's also good for sugar. And yeah, they yeah. do sound the same. I got confused at the first when I when I learned about it. Yeah, they do sound the same. So gynostemma, I learned about at this random conference. Um, I don't even know. This radiologist was talking about gynostemma when I was in school. I don't know why I was at this conference, but I just happened to be there. And he was like talking about the liver and this like these rat models around gynostemma. And there was one where they induced fatty liver um, in the in this murine model. And they use gynostemma tea, just the aqueous extract. And at the end of the study, I'm not sure how many weeks it was, the, the, these mice had like a 20% reduction in their liver weight alone, which is just assumed to be fat, right? Because you're not, your, your liver doesn't lose weight. So if it's losing weight, it's fat that it's losing. So mm-hmm. when I saw that, I was really impressed. And it's a super safe botanical. I mean, some of the toxicity studies show, like even like the higher amounts they had these mice on, like nothing actually happened. So I thought like, this is a perfect botanical. And then some other literature came out. I mean, there's always literature coming out. Um, but there was another study where they took these like treatment naive diabetics, there's like 24 of them. And they did either green tea or they did gynostem. And it was a placebo control trial, but they did those two. And they found at the end of the 12 weeks, the group that drank, it was six grams of gynostema daily. Um, they, their A1C score went down by two whole points. Cool. which is pretty wow. much being from being diabetic to not diabetic. To non-diabetic. Yeah, that's amazing. Right. So I, I, I use it for my diabetic patients, you know, if their A1C is like five point something or like just uh, like marginally at the cusp for prediabetes, diabetes, like you don't see that much of a drop, but those think of those double digit patients, right? The 10, 11, 12, like they can have a substantial amount of reduction. And so that's a super simple botanical that I love to use for fatty liver cases um and then or what sorry, else? I mean, you, I, do you typically mm-hmm. use that in tea form is that the easiest thing is just have them sip on tea all day i do use tea form simply because i cannot um there's not a company that makes a ethanol extract and beyond that uh or that i'm aware of i know that like i think quicksilver has some products but it's not isolated it's like in combination so um, yeah, i think physica energetics has a gynostemma product but i think it's a pill on it. Yeah, there it might be, but it might be combina- combined. And I, I don't know if they have one in tincture form. I'd have to look into that because I know Physica yeah. is still available in the states for you guys. So okay, um, but yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, but I can't find the tincture. Not only that, like when it comes to like people who have liver disease, I try to keep them away from like alcoholic, like alcohol yeah. extracts. I mean, it's not actually going to do anything. But um, and the studies have all been done on aqueous extracts, so I just try to keep it congruent with the literature. A lot, I mean, it's like a nuisance for people to make the tea, but I'm like, what do you want, a liver or you want the tea? You know, so yeah. <laughs> right, pick your pick your poison. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> honestly, it's it's not caffeinated either. So nope. I mean, mm-hmm. so so that's easy. People can just substitute their water and drink that instead. If yep, really that's exactly to. what I have them do. Yeah, yep. I think it's a fantastic idea. I also herb like of vitamin immor- e. immortality. It's called. Yeah, that's how I knew about it because we brought it into the big carrot when I worked in the dispensary, and Francis, and Francis brought it in. Francis brought of it course. in, and he was Francis in- Ashwagandha. Because he literally guy. changed his last name. That's his name? That's so yeah, he changed his last name. This Slovenian he, guy changed his last name to Ashwagandha. He's amazing? like he's a full-on old-school grassroots, <laughs> loves Ayurvedic medicine, and he brought in Jowling, and 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 I remember learning about it from him. But this was like six, eight years ago, and I completely forgot about it until you brought it back on my radar. So thank you. I love that. Yeah, yeah, good times, oh, good times here in Toronto. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. Oh. So aside from Genostemo, what else do you kind of bring into the mix? <clears throat> um, I use vitamin E um, just because there's some studies on vitamin E and fatty liver, and it seems to be really protective against fibrosis of the liver. So mm. I use it for the goal of preventing further progression of fatty liver. And there was a study, a head-to-head study that was run in the, I think, New England Journal of Medicine around vitamin E and I think I want to say pioglitazone um, for looking at the endpoints of fibrosis and liver damage. And so I don't know if they actually found anything with regard to fibrosis, but they did see a significant improvement in like liver inflammatory processes in the group that took the vitamin E over um, was more significant than the pioglitazone group. So I do vitamin E, I'll have like, you know, nuts and seeds, but I'll also sometimes add in like a great quality vitamin E. Supplement. Can, I, can I ask you, Asia, which one? Because I always get confused with vitamin E. I usually go for like this mixed tocopherols. Yeah, I that. do that. It, yeah, mixed tocopherols. I do the mixed tocopherols or and tocotrienols. Um, so there's a company that makes a product that has like a good quality, like um, like the tocotrienols and then the tocopherol. So I do those for mm. patients. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. And then let's see, I also do use botanicals, right? So I love berberine. Berberine, there's some cool literature on yes. berberine and fatty liver. And then yeah. also it's good for the metabolic piece if you kind of hit a few birds at one stone. Yeah, and um, any microbial issues too. Yeah. So berberine's yeah. amazing. I mean, berberine. I love that one. Berberine's like cheating for so many things. I feel it's, it's like, it's, it's like so a triple, good. It's such a triple thread. It's so fantastic. I tell it people, is. I'm going to give you this because it helps with this and this and this. And they're like all yes. in one pill. And I'm like, yes, yes. baby. Yes, yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I just reorganized my supplement closet yesterday. And I mean, I didn't realize how much stuff I have, but it has so much berberine. I feel like when the zombie apocalypse hits, <laughs> I'm going to be set metabolically. You know what I mean? So it's like... <laughs> <laughs> I have my water and my berberine and you know, so I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, what's, what's your, uh, what's your main use for, for berberine? Like, uh, I think we've talked about it maybe in passing Michelle, like blood yeah. sugar, cardiometabolic risk factors, anything yeah. else, Asia, that you you've got insight into berberine on. Um, I use it a lot for SIBO. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. SIBO for hydrogen, hydrogen SIBO. Yeah. And I've read about it for fatty liver specifically too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely top and seven candida. for me. Oh, and candida. Yep, candida is a good one too. Berberine. Yeah, berberine is just an amazing plant. I love All it. All around fantastic. Yeah. I just changed yeah. my name to Asia Berberine or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Asia Berberine. <laughs> love it. Oh my God. I'm going to start thinking about my herbal name. It's going to be yeah. fantastic oh, when yeah. I figure it out. We actually have a friend whose last name legitimately is Hawthorne. Oh, really? Yeah. Sarah Hawthorne. Yeah, that's a good oh, one. Dr. Sarah Hawthorne. She's great. Yeah. She's got a lot of heart too. Yeah. And then was it, and then Dr. Oh my God. Uh, one of our bot med teachers kept calling her Critagus in class because he Nuh-uh. was just Critagus. Can you answer? <laughs> <laughs> For all that's the nerds funny. out there who know. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So we have berberine, we have genostemma, we have vitamin E um any other herbs that you'd particularly gravitate towards i do use a lot of thistle um i think that it's a wonderful botanical for mitigating hepatic inflammation liver inflammation so i do use um, milk thistle typically i'll do like capsule or like some type of um, tincture form out of that mm-hmm. there's some interesting literature on green tea as well and mitigating hepatic inflammatory processes i always focus on the gut because if you look at this the the kind of anatomical physiological mechanism behind blood flow from gut liver you know like 70 some studies say 75 percent, but i try to be modest and say like 60 percent of blood flowing into the liver is coming from the gut Right. We just know you can look at it like a picture of the like circulation. Right. And you see that. Yeah. And so I always focus on the gut. I mean, there's studies now around dysbiosis and fatty liver disease. And so I always do either some type of gut protocol. I'll see if they have SIBO, if they have SIBO related symptoms and then work on eradicating SIBO. I may add in a um, probiotic. So I always do things like that as well. And are yeah. you doing things from the sense of um, improving bile flow? Cause that's how the liver detoxifies. Mm-hmm. So like if mm-hmm. you're changing, so I think about it this way too, if we're trying to change the terrain 
of the liver, which is a detoxification organ. Mm -hmm. But then if we're changing the cellular function, there's going to be breakdown, there's going to be metabolic waste product. We're going to want to make sure that that drains properly. And that's probably going to happen through the bile. Am I correct in saying that? So would increasing bile flow and just, I mean, my, I I always go back to the gallbladder right now because Mm -hmm. I'm kind of obsessed with it and with bile. Mm -hmm. Dave knows he laughs. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming even improving those kinds of factors with like certain bitters and stuff would be helpful. Would that be a good assumption? Yeah, totally. Yep. So I always do like some type of bitter solution. So I love Swedish bitters. It's super simple formula. It's been around forever. So I'll do that or I'll just have them like have bitter food. So I like recommending mm-hmm. dandelion greens. Yeah. Um, you can find them now in stores or you can just pick them out of the yard. So I'll do those <laughs> types of, yeah, I'll do those types of um, bitters for digestive stimulation. I don't really use bile supplements to be honest with you because bile can be um, a little bit, I find corrosive to the gut if you use it in an excess. And, you know, if you mm-hmm. think about bile and how the liver produces it, you know, bile has many functions, but it's also most of our bile is reabsorbed, right? It just kind of yeah. keeps getting recirculated. And so sometimes I'll do binders for folks at night mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. when the liver dumps, you actually, there's some binding capacity. Now there's not really any literature on binders and enterohepatic circulation, but theoretically they do should have some efficacy. They're not getting absorbed. They're staying in the gut. So I will do binders at night while when the liver is more metabolically active. Um, there is an interesting study I wanted to mention about like liver protocols at night. I'll have to find it, but it was a, a study where they were using this botanical and they were trying to deduce how much they needed to use to elicit a certain response. And they found that if they gave this patient botanical, it was for the liver. If they gave this patient a botanical for the liver, they didn't have to use as much at night because the liver was already metabolically active at that mm. time. So I'll have to find it. I posted it somewhere on my page, but I do like just try to do liver stuff at night when people are sleeping, resting and digesting. Awesome. Um, just to kind of like go with the time. I think I don't know if in Chinese medicine, like yeah. if there's like a time for the liver. Yeah, one to three, is. I think. One to three a.m. And gallbladder is okay. eleven to one, and then liver is one to three. That's why nice. they say you should be asleep by eleven p.m. so that you're asleep oh. during that time because it's the most restorative and regenerative time, I believe. I Listen, love that. that. You're touching Asia. You're touching on something there, like chronobiology, which I think is what I don't know how much research there is out there. I've, I've, I went down the rabbit hole once or twice with it and I felt like it wasn't enough there because I think what you're touching on could be applied to so many, so many things, not only doing the right things, it's about when to do those Mm -hmm. things. And, and we know we've had hints from traditional medicine. Like we often do, we have hints of, uh, physiological realities that exist. And then Western sort of like deterministic science then maybe makes them more precise. We've had hints about clocks. That's why the gallbladder, the liver clock mm-hmm, and TCM. Mm-hmm. And I think in Ayurveda, they have a clock too. Probably. Um, but, but this is, I think this chronobiology thing is, uh, is absolutely fascinating. And it's something we really, really need to uh, take advantage of. That's yeah, something. I agree. A hundred percent. I feel like we're so out of touch. Like even in naturopathic medicine, I feel like there's so much we don't know. Oh my God. The yes. Intricacies. The more, you like, know. The more you know, it's like ignorance is straight up bliss because it's like yeah. once you learn, you're just like, I don't want to learn anymore. I don't, I'm ignorant. You know, there's so yeah. much I don't, I need to know now. <laughs> you yeah. can never, which so is great, much. but it's like, yeah. Which is why yeah. I get a kick out of your feed because I was like, oh, here's another little tidbit that I did not know. Thank you, Aisha. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. We know so little. And I think that because we try to compartmentalize and science wants to mm-hmm. like, placebo and this and control group and this and not everything is controlled and I feel like because we compartmentalize so much from a science perspective we lose sight of so many other factors that are involved like Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. the time clock stuff and even I mean and I'll get to the esoteric stuff I don't care Mm -hmm. we are also energetic and electrical beings we are not just you know, like I always yeah. laugh because we, we live in the matrix. It's just mm-hmm. molecules vibrating at energy that creates the illusion yep. of solid matter. Like there's so it. much more. Oh, you're than my kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah totally. Right. And we, see, we know so little, we know so little mm-hmm. when it comes to, mm-hmm. it blows my mind. Sometimes I think of Unstoppable This World and I was like, it's really incredible that molecules vibrating at energy creates this mm-hmm. many things that I can mm-hmm. see before me that mm-hmm. are different. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. It is. Yeah. Very remarkable. The world blows my mind. (laughs) 
I love that you're, that's your perspective and that's how you see things. That's really nice. should be that's magical in some way. Yeah, come on. It, yeah. it is. It's like freaking magic. Yeah. Like, let's be real. If mm-hmm. you stop and think about it, you're like, that's incredible. It really is incredible. And I see people with like, you know, like in the body is like always seeking homeostasis, which is why I think like you can do so little with the sickest person and make such a big change. Mm-hmm. And I see people who are like, oh, I want you, I have all, I have 50,000 50, things going on. I need you to figure it out. And I'm like, whoa, you know, let's just, just yeah, drink yeah. some water, you know? And yeah, so yeah. I, I see these cases that are like, oh, I've been to all these doctors and I'm like, well, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, I don't have a magic wand. And so I'll do like a castor oil pack. And they're like, oh, this was the best thing ever. <laughs> all right. Like, you know, so like little simple things yeah. can make a huge difference. And I yes. think of the human body as like a plant. And I like to keep plants in garden and like, if you overwater your plant, it gives you a sign. It's like, Hey, the leaves are like yellow or they start leaning or whatever they do. If they, it doesn't have enough sun and it looks dried and crusty, you know, it's like, we get these signs, just give it what it needs. And it literally bounces back. Mm-hmm. And I think the human body is like that. It's like, let's just remove the barriers and let the body yeah. do its own thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Let me, so. let me try and tie in some of the, the more esoteric stuff you guys were, were discussing to the, to the liver and, and non-alcoholic fatty liver. And, and so we can maybe tie those things together. I want to ask you if you notice any sort of like mental, emotional patterns, or do you notice like constitutional types in people mm-hmm. that are more susceptible to that stuff? Yeah, I do find that um, people that I see with fatty liver, not all of them, but a good amount of them tend to be very like wiry if that makes sense energetically and Mm. they're looking for some type of like like instead of them like just like chilling out meditating doing something to calm their nervous system down they need something else to kind of cancel it out right so they grab a soda or they grab something that gives them that high and it's kind of like a a neutralization of the energy fields if that makes sense Hmm. and it's like it just keeps happening and then they have fatty liver so a lot of the people that i see like they don't just drink one soda a day, right? They need that constant fix of something sweet, something this, something that it's like around the clock kind of vibe. And it's like, what I think is like, yeah, we have food addictions, but it's like, there's some part of your energetic field that can't be bothered with itself, you know? So you need something to continually cancel it out. Right. So you can kind of be mm. in this, if that, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, well, I really hooked onto the first part that you said, and it really sounds like the Chinese medicine perspective of, you know, constrained chi or liver chi stagnation, right? That sort of uh-huh. wired, like just, just like, zzz, uh, like, like uh-huh. just buzzing, right? Yep, yep, yep. And they get the, the dopamine high and they're like, oh, you know, and then it's like back again, liver buzz, liver buzz. So I think yeah. that's, that's what I see. I remember seeing a 17 year old girl with fatty liver and she was lean. Like she wasn't somebody that she would think, oh, she she may have fatty liver, you know, she has blood sugar issues, she's overweight. She was literally lean, super small and had fatty liver disease. And her diet, it was just straight junk from morning to night, trash, trash, mm-hmm. trash. And so, mm-hmm. you know, once again, you think like, at some point, the body is going to want real food, right? And and when does that happen? I don't know, but you see these people just like so depleted and just mm. running on sugar or running on these like kind of dopamine highs. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's so hard because I, I bet some of them grew up with like, um, I, I think I hear Mark Hyman talking about this. Uh, so I wonder if it's more like American centric idea, but mm-hmm. I think we must have them here in Canada too, which is like these kind of food deserts or mm-hmm. like places where you just can't get healthy food and, mm-hmm. and and something I never really think about like I live a bit in the in the sticks uh sure. so we don't have like the freshest produce and stuff at what's times. the sticks is the sticks the hood what's the sticks <laughs> the woods not the hood the not wood the, the woods <laughs> not the hood the wood <laughs> uh, gotcha we, we talked to Michelle's in the six I'm in the sticks so um anyway but like so, so we have a lot of stuff, but it's not like when I lived in Toronto, like I could have every kind of, you know, Hey, yeah. want some dragon fruit or whatever the hell you want. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but I really feel for these people that either their environment, meaning like the, the place that they live doesn't have it, or they grew up in a, in a place where it was just like, well, you know, since the fifties moms are supposed to work. And so now, you know, they, they do more, they just have to do more. And so something had to give in a lot of cases. And that was like a lot of processed food or, or yeah. whatever. So they learned from maybe working moms or, or, or whatever, and, and they're eating TV dinners and, and stuff. So I feel for those people, you know? Yeah. I mean, listen, I live in the hood, so I a hundred percent 
feel that. I see that. Like I have good friends here in St. Louis and that's what I see, right? We're all around the same age and, you know, they think I eat weird, but I think they eat weird, right? Yeah. But it's also how we grew up. So my mom was just very like, she grew up in the hood too, but she was very health conscious. And my, you know, other people in my family, my aunts were, were not like that, right? And at some point, I think that I, this food addiction kind of starts to play in to where you know you want to do better, but all around you is like these ads for junk food. And I think, mm -hmm. I think it was Dr. Who's the um, McGregor, the plant-based guy. He was, I was listening to a podcast he did once and he said that the number one cause of like metabolic disease or obesity is not like poor diet lifestyle choices. It's advertisement mm. because the power of the mind. Right. And so you here in the hood, like there's so many fast food joints and like you get on the freeway and it's like the advertisement for these new freaking taco. That's Bell all there fries. is. Yeah. You know, it's like just literally your mind all day is inundated with food, yeah. food, food, crap food. And like their actual studies showing how there are disproportionate amounts of junk food ads where black Hispanic folks live in America compared to say like the suburb area out here in St. Louis or Missouri. So I feel that a hundred percent, you know, I think it's not just like, oh, make better choices. I think it's the power of the mind that we don't talk about in that subconscious mind and how it makes most of our decisions that we're not even really aware of. What did you, what, what do you think was it about your mom that she even growing up where she did, she was able to, to like recognize like the value of doing that. What is it about your mom? You think, you know, what I'll say is I think that my, so my parents converted to Islam before I was born. Right. And so in Islamic culture, like just eating is different than mm -hmm. say like black American culture. And so my family, like they grew up eating traditional foods that enslaved black folks ate. Right. So they ate a lot of like high sodium meat products. They ate a ton of like carby pasta -y type things, tons of sugary stuff. And so my mom ate that way too. And then her and my father converted to Islam um, and they were Christian. They converted to Islam before I was born and they just started eating differently. And my mom started reading more books around healthy eating. And, you know, I would say she's the healthiest person that I know. She eats like one meal a day. And some people say that's not healthy. Some people say it's fine, but she's been doing this since for like 20 years. She exercises every day. She has like the, the sharpest mind. She looks like she, she's 56. She looks like she could be like in her thirties. And so she is so disciplined when it comes to her eating. And like, so we saw that growing up and then growing up with her and my dad like my dad used to they both used to be really athletic like football cheerleading when they were in high school and my dad played college uh, football so they all they were always also very into health exercise so and to some degree um but when I remember growing up my mom never kept like medication in the house like when mm. I had menstrual cramps and I first started my period I thought I was gonna die and she would be like, oh, your body's just trying to tell you something. So figure it out. And so, you know, I used to be screaming in the house. And my little sister's like, shut up. She, like, you don't understand. <laughs> and so I had my first ibuprofen when I was like 22. And I was like, this is the best thing ever. You know, I was like drunk. And, you know, I'm glad that she did not give us that growing up. Because it kind of enabled my problem-solving mind. Like, even yeah. to this day, yes. if I have a headache, I'm like, oh, I'm dehydrated. It's like, oh, I, I did this today. Like, my mind automatically goes to, like, what happened instead of, like, let me just take something. So I love that your mom yeah. was like, your body's trying to tell you something. And that is, th that is the truth right there. If you have <laughs> symptoms, your body is trying mm -hmm. to communicate with you. That's true. And, th and the answer is not to shut off the symptom, but figure out why exactly. you have it in the first place. That's right. That right there is the truth in a nutshell. Right. And thank God for your mom. <laughs> thank God for my mom. Yeah. That's so we cool. Call her that's prison warden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, but that shows the link between, you know, culture or, or uh, like a kind of culture or, or um, community and food, right? Uh -huh, it, was, uh -huh. it was when it changed, you know, with the conversion to Islam, then, then you see, you know what I mean? And, and Michelle, like, I think you got, you got like some Euro roots, right? Yeah. Um, Italian, and, Polish. We always had a garden. Yeah. Yeah. We had a yummy, uh, yeah, had a yummy cupboard and that was not accessible unless it was the weekend and it was super high and my really? mom never, yeah. And my mom never, we had a lot of garden, fresh foods. I remember going out into my garden and pulling a carrot out of the garden, rinsing it with a hose, eating it as a snack and going back out to play. <laughs> and that was how I grew up. And yeah. it was amazing. We had cherry trees and apple trees. We had an Aww. amazing garden. And all the East Euros, I, I know it's the yeah. same. They're all green thumbs. And, and, and a fruit cellar and a, and a cold cellar. Cause my dad yeah. would wow. make his own wine 
wine and we'd have like Italian sausages curing in the fruit cellar. And and so it was an amazing upbringing. I always, always pride my upbringing. And I remember my mom, if I ever had a sore tummy, she'd drink, drink some hot lemon water. If you were sick, Mm -hmm, have some echinacea mm -hmm. or have some honey or have some of this. She would never reach for the medic, the medication type Mm -hmm. of stuff unless we really needed it. It was all about Vicks on the chest or take a tepid water bath to to cure a fever, (laughs) make a hot chicken noodle soup. Like my mom was old school like that. And if, if the doctor says she needs to have this kind of medication, she's like, what can I try first before you give my daughter a medication? Mm -hmm. My mom, my medical doctor, he knew Dr. Ambis props to Dr. Ambis. He always knew my mom came in to never recommend a medication (laughs) first to either like give her the idea that she can try like vitamin C echinacea first. And if that fails, then he can can come back and ask for something else. He was good at respecting those boundaries for us. So (laughs) to your mom. Yeah. yeah, Let's, we should all give love to our, like our, like I'm just, I'm like seven generations, the most boring waspy white Canadian boy ever. But my grandma, uh, my grandma used to go to like Mennonite farms to get like, to get the, you know, fresh eggs or or, mm, my grandma knew. So like all three of us are very lucky, I think. And, and maybe, uh, it's an opportunity to give thanks to all our, our moms and grandmamas or whoever it was. Yeah, shout out, mom, shout out mama. Yeah. Shout out to the madres. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then maybe help us understand why some other people who haven't had that upbringing, um, we can have some compassion. I mean, literally there's so many diseases that are rooted in that lack of, you know what I mean? That. Yeah. Isn't that why so- we do what we do kind of? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It like, honestly, it just reminds me of just going back to those simple traditions. Like when I used to laugh at my babja for having fermented pickles in the fruit cellar. And now I like, I'm like, give me those freaking fermented pickles. That's some good <laughs> gut health, yo. Like mm-hmm. hook yeah. me up. Yeah. And it's so funny. I just go back and it's, it's the older I get, the more I just want to go back to those traditions. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's interesting. And how much I more, I respect the more as, as right. I learn about actual health mm-hmm, so and how mm-hmm. to really support optimal health That's and to right. tie it to the liver like mm-hmm. and fatty liver which we we you know we started talking about and and really focused a lot on i can't think of too many other conditions that are just so related to diet and lifestyle like there's so much there is some things it's maybe you want to do diet and lifestyle as your foundational you know jump off point and there might be more mm-hmm. specific physical interventions whatever that you need to do but when it comes to fatty liver, man, like this is, this is, this is like, uh, this is our bread and butter as, as lifestyle, uh, you right. know, that this is, the, you, we could do so much to prevent uh, fatty liver and treat it. And like you said, it's reversible. Yeah. So how long, just for the quick frame of reference, how long do you typically give, I mean, estimates, cause everything's individualized, depends on severity and stuff, mm-hmm. but like, what's an average for the turnaround for a fatty liver that you would say roughly like a six, six to nine months or something uh, like that? Not even that. I would say maybe like four to six months. Right. And so if they are losing and maybe like four to six months, they have like a ton of like, like weight, more weight that they need to use. They'll do a little bit longer. Right. But if mm-hmm. I see like the seven, 10% weight loss and then liver enzymes start trending down, even if the weight is not lost but you see those liver enzymes starting to trend down. That's a positive sign, even though you can't rely on them, but if they are consistently elevated across like a few blood work panels that they've had done or or like um, liver panels they've had done and you start seeing them trend down, that's a positive sign. So, you know, that's a sign that I'm like, okay, Hey, your liver is improving. There's less stress on it. And then once they start losing weight, that's also a positive sign. So I just stick with those two markers. And then, you know, I'll say you're totally welcome to go ahead and get another ultrasound Um, And I typically try to encourage them to have the radiologist that ran it before run it again so they can actually Mm. compare it instead of going all across town for different imaging to different imaging centers. So, yeah, that's pretty much all I use. I mean, we know that with the literature, weight loss, um, liver enzymes going down, those are like kind of positive correlates to reducing fat. And just a quick question to follow up. How soon would you run another ultrasound? Like for like, again, that four to six month mark to really give you a good go. Okay. Yep. 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 Cool. Asia, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. Totally. This was really great. And it was just so fun and like natural and it flowed. I really enjoyed it as well. I did too. And I learned some stuff about you. And then um, we brought Gynostema into Dave's uh, headspace now. Let's let's repeat the fact that I I knew uh, cube root of dick all about Gynostema. (laughs) 
and uh i've been but jim, nema, but jim nema is a blood sugar regulating herb and they sound it very is. similar oh, so no. don't worry okay. don't worry because sometimes when i'm reading like literature and i think it says gynostim it says jim nema and i get it wrong so totally i'm there with you guys are so com- I read this whole paper and it was not even like, <laughs> talking about what i wanted you guys are so oh, compassionate to my ignorance. Thank you so much. Oh man, I confused them at the beginning so much. It's like it's yeah. it's, it's, it's easy, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome, Asia. Thank you so much for coming on. Maybe we can have you come back and we could talk about something else because you yeah, we totally. do love digestive health stuff. And yeah. for all of our listeners, please go check out her Instagram. We will add the yes. handle to the podcast um, uh, copy as well as into our Instagram posts, but also, um, Asia, non-liver related, but still GI mm-hmm. related. She has an amazing ebook. It's called nine bomb tools for GERD, a comprehensive guide with naturopathic tools for reflux disease. And you can find that through her bio on her Instagram page. So please go check out her Instagram, check out her bio, Yay. click for the ebook. You will not be disappointed. Everybody. Thanks so much. This was so wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Asia. Thank you. That Naturopathic Podcast, TNP. Hello there. Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus focused vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada.